Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Brenny brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review, and you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you are enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Renee Ryan from Kala Health, discuss her background in investment banking, her transition to an investor, what they are working on at Kala Health, working with a board, closing their financing rounds, best advice for startup companies, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Renee Ryan. Thank you very much for being with us here today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And we're here today. I've talked to MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no silver bullet specific formula or even magic about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here is I wanted to extract insights to demystify this process of helping those who we can benefit with this information and also for future generations of medtech innovators to come. And so this audience here today is a mixture of medtech entrepreneurs and investors. And what I'd like to share is your stories and advice with what I imagine that first time founder or CEO and has no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And I'm actually very excited I shouldn't say actually, I'm, I am very excited to be here today talking with you because we got a first time experience and I'm going to pop the bubble on your background, which we will get into. But typically this holistic picture of raising and investing capital in medtech, which we're trying to paint with this series, has been made up of entrepreneurs, investors, and then also even investment bankers. And it's the first time we've actually had all three in one. So we're going to learn about your background today, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, before we do that and jump in, I, I'm going to start with a few open-ended questions to kind of warm up the conversation. And then we're going to learn about who you are, the company that you're representing, and I'll spoil it. It's Kala Health. And then get into some objective pieces on raising as well as investing capital in medtech. So my first one, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a medtech startup? Why or why not? Or would you add anything if I'm missing something? So first, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, and uh, listen, so are people and money the lifeblood? Uh, you know, absolutely the lifeblood of any any startup. Uh, you got to hire the right kind of people. You got to hire doers. Um, I, I talk a lot about Cala being filled with doers. We don't have time for people to just sit back and you know put their feet on a desk and strategize. So you need doers. And um, I think there's the world of capital uh, can come from a lot of different sources. It's not just venture capital. You've got active angel groups, you've got a lot of family offices, you've got scrappy entrepreneurs who do without. And so um, we've got models of all of that here in Silicon Valley. And that's what's exciting about the money side of it. And this notion of, and you've seen it from various aspects, whether it's from the investment banker side, the investor side, or now the entrepreneurial side, but this notion of luck and 
and how it plays into business in general, but even specifically in this regulated and often sometimes slower moving industry that we play in within medtech. So do you believe in luck and how much does luck actually play into the success of medtech? Uh, you know, I think uh, I do believe in luck, um, but I believe more in hard work. Um, you know, there's, uh, I look back, you know, Calo, uh, well, we're going to get into the history here, but I, I came into the CEO role about uh, two years ago that I've been around the company since day one. And yeah, we've gotten, you know, lucky on a few things, but there's also an amazing amount of just sheer tenacity and commitment that has got us to where we are today. Um, so I believe more in hard work. And I ask this question in, in various components, whether it's to investors or now to entrepreneurs. So I'll ask it in both ways for you. Um, if you knew what you know now about now, specifically being a medtech entrepreneur or even in your history of being an investor, and we can touch base on that, would you do it all over again or would you just go off the handle and do something totally different and get out of medtech and something that you've aspired to? Or do you just love what you do? So all I know is that I love the field of healthcare and, and med tech, health tech, uh, broadly defined. And so uh, when we talk about my history, I'll, I'll tell you the story about how I sort of caught, I say the healthcare bug bit me. And it was sort of very early in my career. In fact, probably my first month on the job in investment banking, I really fell in love with healthcare. And that has always been my true north. So I didn't really care what I did, uh, whether it was investment banking or investing or now being a CEO, as long as I had my eye on how I can impact patients. So that to me was the, the true north that I've always carried um, and you know, never knew that the, the path would take me to where I am today, but I'm loving it. And I, this next question, I usually ask it to what you call those scrappy entrepreneurs and, and a <laughs> lot of early stage startup companies. And this idea of being glamorous of, of for being a CEO in med tech, right? And, and especially the earlier on, without leading the question here, um, it's not glamorous. I mean, th there's a lot of hard work. And of course, you have the title, but it's, uh, it's a lot of hard work, even where people are taking out the garbage themselves, they just happen to call themselves CEO. But when you come into a later stage commercial stage organization, which truly is different from those very, very early stage R&D style innovative startup companies, having a full team underneath you, millions of dollars invested in the company, personally raised millions of dollars yourself, um, having a commercial strategy and success on that side. Is it glamorous in your shoes being a medtech CEO? Why or why not? Absolutely not. Um, but I remember, I also came into a situation where, um, and I'm now going to dip into Cal a little bit. So we've developed a breakthrough technology. We have a you know, de novo F, you know, from, the, from the FDA. Um, so there was no predicate for our technology. We've come through, we have unique coding now from Medicare. Clearly we don't fall into an existing category of product. And so because of that, there's no playbook here. So you said these funny words, commercialization strategy. We didn't have necessarily a strategy. We had some, I think some beliefs and some theories as to what would work. And it was our job to go and execute against them and fail fast, right? That was all about, and I kept saying to the team, if we don't have big scabs on our knees, it means we're not learning hard enough. And so it was um, kind of a unique situation where I uh, am a first time CEO. I didn't have direct commercialization expertise, but I had a high enough risk appetite to be willing to, to go out and make those mistakes. Um, now that we're two years in, um, we do have a commercialization strategy. You know, we've, we've uh, advanced to, to now really sort of formulize what will it look like going forward as they press on the gas. 
So in other words, having built all that, that's the glamour. It's the, the glamour of pride and glory of just being able to build something rather than, you know, what we assume this glamorous stuff to be on. Oh Netflix. yeah. I'm so proud of the team we built. I mean, these, I, we have rock stars uh, on, on the team here. It's, it's great. So then leading into Kala Health, then there's always either a short or long story behind a name, but what does the name of your company mean, Kala Health? Where's Kala come from? So our founder, Kate Rosenbluth, I met originally out of the Stanford Biodesign Program where she was a fellow and then continued on for about a year working on, on this technology. Um, her mom is a, a concert pianist. And, um, you know, naming companies, as you know, is not an easy feat anymore. You've got to be kind of creative. And there's a supposedly a, a piano term. I believe it's something like, um, I'll get it wrong, but caliendo or calendo that signifies a, a calming or a playing of the piano very softly. And knowing that our first indication was a treating of hand tremors and to reduce the burden of tremor for our patients, um, that's that was how the, the company was named. So Cala comes from a musical term. I love that. I think that's that's why I like asking that question. There's always something behind it. Something <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So the woman behind the voice at this point, Renee Ryan, CEO of Kala Health, tell us about yourself. Where are you from? How did you build this academic professional career? And how did you ultimately lead up to being CEO of Kala Health? And then we'll jump into who and what Kala Health is and what you guys are building there. Yeah, I know. Happy to. And um uh, so uh, I'm actually, I was born and raised here in California, which is I'm fairly one of the, the rare natives to the state. Um, I was an only child. Uh, I went to school down in, in Monterey, California, which is a small kind of a touristy town. And I wanted to go to a big city. And so I only applied to colleges that were in larger cities. I ended up going to Georgetown, uh, partially because it was a five hour plane ride away from mom and dad. <laughs> Um, but I love DC. DC is an amazing place to be a, you know, a poor starving student, right? Because all the museums are free. There's so much to do on the weekends. And so really took advantage of Washington DC and, and all the cultural activities. Um, graduated with a, an economics degree. And I was also very young when I uh, both went to and graduated from college. I was only 20 years old when I graduated and was looking at jobs in New York City. And I thought, you know, I'm blonde haired, blue eyed girl from California not even old enough to drink, I better not go to New York City. <laughs> but I had been doing, uh, I'd been interviewing for investment banking jobs because I, the only thing I really knew coming out of college was that I was a good student. And so I thought, where could I go and continue to learn and be taught? And to me, the two kind of career paths that I could see were consulting or investment banking. Um, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a numbers person, so I chose sort of the finance uh, angle and ended up starting at a boutique inv investment bank in San Francisco that only focused on technology and healthcare. It was one of the, one of the you know, companies, a la the Hamburg Quist of the world. It was called Cowan, and it would, had a phenomenal equity research team, and they were building the investment banking uh, group. And I, I went in there and was their first analyst they ever had and, and kind of grew from there. So I spent a full I don't know, 16, 18 years in investment banking, all healthcare, um, all product in healthcare. So med tech, biotech, pharma, healthcare IT, et cetera. And then that led you to being in your next role after being an investment banker into... Spoiler. An investor. Yeah. And so what happened after that was, so um, again, totally passionate about impacting patients and the care of patients. By the time you're a partner at an investment bank, 
you're not spending as much time with your clients as you would like, and you're spending a lot more time managing the firm. Um, and so I always say, be careful what you wish for, because I kind of didn't like my job as much anymore. <laughs> and so I, um, I made the decision to go into industry and uniquely uh, JJDC, which is the longest standing uh, venture corporate venturing group, um, uh, was hiring a West Coast med tech investor at the time. And uh, lo and behold, that's the next spot I landed on. And so I joined at the time JGDC was a small group. We had, um, we had about 12 investors active, um, big portfolio. And I just made it made more investments and made it even bigger. Nice. So I was at J&J for about eight years. And then you got tapped on the shoulder or did you just decide to jump into entrepreneurship that led you to Kala Health after that? Well, so the story at 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 J and J, I had um I was able to you know take on some existing portfolio companies, um, uh, but a couple of really interesting kind of opportunities came my way because I had an investment banking background and I knew how to kind of form companies and so what a capital structure needed to look like. I actually ended up starting about six or seven different companies. Um, most notable in that in that list was Verb Surgical, which was the uh, robotics company that kind of stood between, you know, Ethicon, which is the surgical business at J&J, Verily, which was the old Google Life Sciences, and then Google itself. Uh, and so we stood up a company uh, in between those three. Um, they were the three major owners of the company and then really drove it to uh, ultimately it was acquired by, by J&J. So once you, you know, do something that massive and it was such an enormous lift, uh, I I'd started about you know five or six more companies after that, and um, I kind of wanted to do something a little different. And uh, I was considering uh, going a different path. I was still on the board at Cala. We were looking for a commercialization CEO, and we were finding people who came from the traditional surgical neuromodulation arena or from you know a consumer only background. But we had a, a kind of a, a job spec that said we want the ideal candidate to have pharmaceutical medical device and consumer expertise and uniquely as you know j and j um i know they're making decisions about their consumer business but at the time jjdc managed a portfolio of pharmaceutical biotech type opportunities med tech and then consumer and i had done a lot of work at j and j with our um uh, our vision franchise, which was heavily on the contact lens side. So it had a huge consumer component to it. And so um, it was my husband actually who convinced me to put my name into the hat uh, to be the CEO at Cala. Um, and so lo and behold, here, here I am. Here you are. Very nice. Well, I, I got a few questions that I popped out of that we'll ask next, but um, tell us about Cala Health now. Let's highlight Cala Health, what you guys are doing, the indication, the technology, just that high level pitch of the company you're building. Yeah, so we like to say that uh, Cala sits at a really unique intersection. Um, we leverage all of the breakthroughs going on in the field of neuroscience and all the insights we're garnering about um, the brain and circuitry and pathways, right? You combine that with proprietary hardware. Um, we uh, have a watch-like form factor that stimulates two nerves at the wrist. In order to do that, we needed to build a basically a neuromodulation board or pulse generator watch and then proprietary electrode material uh, to be worn uh, comfortably by the patient to deliver electricity into the nerves. And then we put that all, we wrap all of that in a very data rich uh, and digital business model. So that's kind of the, the vision of the three little buckets that we sit in. So today, Cala uh, re originally received our FDA de novo 510K approval in 2018. Um, 
we uh, decided not to commercialize at that time. We ended up doing a very large, it's actually the largest study ever run in the ET patient population. ET is essential tremor, which is the single most prevalent movement disorder in the world. In the United States alone, there's somewhere between seven to 10 million essential tremor patients. So we ran this very large study, it was 263 patients. We used gold standard ratings by the physician rating of tremor and a patient's own self-evaluation of their tremor. But the beautiful part of having a connected wearable technology is we also could do um, uh, objective measurements of the tremor. And so we have onboard motion sensors that do dose-by-dose -dose, uh, tremor measurements. And so we know exactly how the patients are benefiting um, uh, over the course of their, of their care. And that was a three-month study. We now have patients out well over two years, and we see them continuing to use their device um, pretty frequently throughout the week. So we're very pleased with the performance of the technology. So we, um, we first commercialized in uh, the fourth quarter of 2019. Um, but we started small. We started in three test markets because we wanted to walk before we ran. Um, we learned a lot. We actually stayed in market during COVID. We did have a, you know, kind of a little bit of a dip in our prescription volume in that April, May timeframe, but we just kept growing for the rest of the year. We had really nice growth in the business. Um, we've now expanded to um, a fourth test market and uh, early next year, we're you know sitting here, you know, right before Christmas, 2021, in January of 2022, we'll add two or three more territories. So you'll see us begin to push on the gas pretty dramatically in 2022. And will there be future global expansion as well, or just for right now, just hardcore focus on U.S.? So right now, the, the hardcore focus on the U.S. with our first generation product. We obviously uh, continue to believe that we can advance the, the hardware and the full digital ecosystem. And we believe that it's that fully robust platform which we could uh, carry outside the U.S. But in the meantime, we're also working on our next movement disorder indication, which would actually be a label expansion on the current device. And that would be for the treatment of hand tremors in the Parkinson's patient population. And if you can paint some very layman imagery, if you, if you don't mind. So I have someone very close to me who is very active human being, but has a hand tremor. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it as simple as what the human eye would look at and it looks like a watch, but you just put on a watch and solution done, or how does it actually work? In oh, it's a, that's a great question. So um, the beautiful thing about the technology is it's individually calibrated. So it's a little bit larger than um, a watch. So if you go to our website, you'll see it. It's a, as a, currently we have an oval shape um, and it sits a little bit um, higher on the wrist. Patient uh, puts on the device. It's a very easy device. There's a Velcro. Um, so if, even with patients that have hand tremors, they can manage to securely um, attach the device to their wrist. They press a button on the top of the device and the device tells the patient to do a tremor task. The tremor task is a 20 second postural hold. It's either with your elbows out to the side or your arms straight in front of you. That 20 second hold allows the device to read your tremor. Hmm. So it's saying, Giovanni, your tremor is, is um, oscillating at this frequency. We then automatically, the software automatically adjusts the waveform to meet your needs. So then after that 20 second hold is complete, the patient can press the start button and it starts a therapy session. Right now, our sessions are 40 minutes in length. The patient can end it if early if they feel they, they've gotten the benefit they want. They usually see benefit in their tremor at about minute 10 to 15. They'll see and feel the tremor burden being reduced. That, that continues to increase the benefit throughout the full 40 minutes of STEM. They can either leave the device on, take it off, it doesn't matter. Um, and they see about 60 to 90 minutes of uh, reduced tremor burden continue after the session is complete. 
Hmm. So what we see in our actual commercial usage is we see patients using the device about five to seven times in, um, a week, but they use it intensely over two to three days. So what we, and we have anecdotal evidence of this, but what we understand is that our patients are using it when they have an activity of interest, when they're leaving their home uh, and want to go to lunch with their girlfriend or go to the park and play with their grandchild and they don't want to be embarrassed by having hand tremors. So they're using it where they need it and when they need it. Um, on the flip side, we have some of what I call our super users who just wear the device all day and do back-to-back -back sessions. So they have you know, almost all day relief of their tremor burden. Very cool. Well, wishing you guys luck in 2022 for that continuous expansion on the commercial side. Thank you. I want to jump into the more objective piece here and dig into this capital raising, capital investing piece and, and get some of your insights out of here. Once again, I'm going to hone in on the fact that this is the first time we've ever had a, an investment banker, an investor and an entrepreneur all wrapped <laughs> up in one. So I'm going to start with this fairly open-ended question and have it go in stages and, and we can take it from there. But um, being an investment banker and then going into being an investment investor with JJDC, did it did being an investment banker make you a better investor? And then when you were an investor who then turned entrepreneur, did being an investment banker turned investor turned entrepreneur make you a better entrepreneur? Okay, let me break those down. I will I'll clearly say being an investment banker. Um, so a couple of things you have to do as an investment banker is you have to, uh, number one, go deep on technology and disease indications. You have to understand the, the, how the body works to be a good healthcare investment banker. So that was that student part of me that I loved that learning. I'd love to learn a new body part, a new, you know, a new technology. Um, it also was mission critical to understand the competitive landscape. So with that sort of line of sight. Like if you were to say, you know, give me a category, I could tell you all the, all those players in that space. Cause I needed to know how to build a potential, you know, M&A target list if I was selling a company. Right. So those two, and also the financial analytics and love of technologies, all of that sort of rolled up to making me a better investor for sure. Um, and especially for things that were fairly early and you were looking as to where it would fit within a broader industry at some point down the road. Right, because most of the investments JJDC was making were fairly early stage, and we knew what J and J often knew what their technology was or their sort of view of the market, but didn't always have necessarily that that broader landscape of the existing players or the emerging players. And that's really what I kind of brought to the table. Um, I also had a, a thesis when I left investment banking that. It's often the part of the board meeting that the investment banker is invited to is the last 30 minutes, you know, where you get to talk about the IPO market or the merger and acquisition market. And I had the thesis that I had more value to give to each of the companies as a board member. And um, very clearly, that was something I, I wanted to test out. And I found that I did have more value to add. I had, whether it was the network or just the experience, because as an investment banker, you're not taking a CEO public, you're taking a whole business public and you're having to know all of the various pieces of the business and how they work together successfully or not successfully. Right. Um, and so that's, that to me is uh, some of those really important sort of skill sets that I tested out as an investor. Um, what it helped me grow was um, 
uh, learning how to be a board member, um, learning to understand a corporate governance and all the key issues and um, you know what to do and what not to do uh, as a board member. Um, I also enjoyed, I mean, j and is an incredible uh, company in terms of just its breadth and its depth globally. Uh, so my role at J&J, about two or three years into it, I actually took over all of the med tech, health tech investing in Asia Pacific. And so it gave me a very big global lens um, that I'm eager to apply here at Cala. I haven't yet, but uh, but I did have having that experience for five years, um, you know, being in market um, in in. Asia broadly defined. I mean, think about all the different you know territories. It was everything from Australia, New Zealand, through you know China and Japan, and they're all very, very different uh, and, and uh, opportunities. So you took little bits and pieces and nuggets along this journey to now being an entrepreneur. Where, um, let me take one question, then we can tie it all together. Is is being an entrepreneur? very different from what you've experienced in your previous career? Meaning like, was an easier jump going from investment banker to investor? And then was it like off the deep end into something that you had to wide open, I got to create something in front of me as an entrepreneur? Like, what was that hardest move? Was it IB to investor or investor to entrepreneur? And why? Gosh, that's a really hard question. Because there's there's so many unknowns. I would say... Um, you know, I always would say to my CEOs, make sure you have people you can talk to because the CEO job is a really lonely one. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, that people think it's a very can be very glamorous because you get to get on stage and give the presentations. But there's so much about this job that is totally not glamorous. <laughs> All of the legal and HR type of challenges you have along the way. Um, but it is in many ways much more rewarding, right? Because I can see um, I can see the daily impact I can have on, especially the people. You go back to the first question. It's about people. If you don't get the right people. And so um, uh, I, I am extraordinarily proud of the leadership team I built. And I think if you were to ask each of them, why are they here? A big piece of it's, it's, it's me. And um, I think a confidence in me to be able to figure out. I mean, I've got $30 billion of M&A under my belt. I've taken 25 companies public. So whatever uh, whatever the journey is, if Cala continues kind of on our own, we'll be fine. If somebody decides they want to come and purchase us, we'll be fine that way too. So lots of good stuff going forward. And then going to entrepreneurship, then just to kind of distill that filter down, I mean, being an investment banker and having these wide industry views, like you mentioned, right? And then being an investor and not necessarily not having a wide view, but having a little bit more targeted view on fewer companies, let's just say, and even creating some, like you mentioned, now having full responsibility for one singular company, Kala Health, and that full 360 and holistic view of what you can do to create that company, that's that's what you like. I mean, in terms of having that fulfillment of seeing how you can grow one entity. Yeah, and you know, in the early days, I really missed, I missed the deal flow. Like I missed seeing new entrepreneurs and their new great ideas, right? Um, but today, um, I, I kind of, I, I grew out of it. I don't miss it anymore. I mean, to, to me, I'm fully in at Cala. There, every day is a new challenge, um, but there are challenges, right? And there are mistakes to make. And so um, that sense of ownership that you get in this role um, and that I try to instill in, in, in the employees and the team that we have, that to me is the, is the really a difference. Um, you don't get that, uh, you, maybe a little bit as an investor, but not like this. Yeah. So I, I wanna spin back and just now focus on your time over at J&J &J or, or JJDC, like you mentioned. Um, 
being, and you technically consider that a corporate venture capital arm, right? That's how you would. Yeah. And yeah. And it's interesting because I would say that not all corporate venture is the same. J and J is a very strategic uh, corporate investors. So they're really looking for investing in um, things that are strategically aligned with where they see the industry going. Many of the corporate venturing groups are want to fuel the ecosystem, right? They don't necessarily want to necessarily own all those portfolio companies, but they want a healthy ecosystem. So there's all sorts of different models in corporate venture. So then that leads me to my question. Um, what are some of those models so that we can learn? I mean, if we're speaking to a, let's just assume it's an elementary audience for us for the example of, of this mm -hmm. question talk about cvc's corporate venture capital and what are some of their purposes and, and you can start with talking about jjdc and jj's focus of why they did their strategy but just so those entrepreneurs know out there who may want to go raise capital for their company why if interacting with cvc's is either appropriate or how they do it or what they should consider or if they get some feedback from a cvc and it's thanks but no thanks maybe understand why so tell us about how those corporate venture worlds actually work yeah um so uh corporate venture uh, broadly defined, literally can have mandates that span pure financial returns all the way through, you know, very highly strategic. I would say that JJDC uh, uh, bends way more on the strategic side, but they also ensure sort of, um, you know, fiscal responsibility and, and you know, proper portfolio management. They're not going to do anything super off the charts crazy, right? Um, and so how we invested at J&J &J was you needed to have uh, alignment with a business unit. And so uh, when I think about the verb surgical example that I gave, you know, very clearly Ethicon and the MedTech leadership were very aligned with making that investment, building that company because they saw the opportunity at some point to then pull it back in, which they did do um, there. But not every corporate venturing group looks like that. So any person, any entrepreneur that's going in front of a corporate venturing group, do your best to understand where they fall. Because I think that will also help you position the company itself. For example, if you know that this is just a financial, you know, type of returns investor, you know, that may be a, a different sort of focus on the exit strategy and the, the exit multiple that you can garner versus when you're in front of someone like a J&J, &J, it's really about the strategic fit is going to drive the vast majority of the investment thesis. And then that leads me to my next question. Um, and if there is redundancy, help paint the picture of what's the difference and how do they act differently, CVCs and even that broad spectrum that you just painted versus classical or traditional or institutional investors? Like your classical institutional investor, whichever venture capital firm you go to out there, how do they act differently than a CVC? Hmm. Most, I mean, there's a couple of bold lines, right? Which is the percent of the company they can own, right? financial investors are not capped. Typically, a corporate investor wants to own less than 20%. Now, there's ways to get around it, but just to be simple, simple purpose, they can't own, you know, a control stake in any of their portfolio companies is, is typically what most corporate groups will, will tell you. Um, whereas, that, I just yeah. always want to ask the question, why? So that, that was a huge new piece of information for me. Is there, oh. a, is there a legal oh. reason behind that? Or? <laughs> so if you own over 50%, um, uh, I, as the investor, need to consolidate your lo typical losses, right? Most of these startups are losing money. I need to consolidate your losses onto my PL. 
So imagine JJDC. At the time I left a couple of years ago, they had 160 portfolio companies, all of them losing money. Right. The last thing they want to do is consolidate all those losses on the big J and J um, financial statements. Um, and then typically, if you own over 20%, you do have to take some uh, some portion of, of the accounting hit as well. So typically, you'll find most of the corporate guys stay below that 20% kind of um, bold line in the sand. Interesting. I, I just learned something. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is be a teacher of accounting rules. I promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> So then you were you were going into the story and I cut you off with the, with the why question, but the, the difference between institutional investors and I think you were saying that the fact that institutional investors are typically not capped where CVCs are wanting to be capped because of those accounting practices you just mentioned. So yeah. are, there, are there other reasons behind the differences or the way they act or motives? And I would say that the typically, this is, and this is a typical, typically you find because corporate investors are typically investing off a balance sheet. They don't have those fund life cycle problems. But the fund life cycle problems can actually work to your benefit as a startup. So for example, sometimes if you're like us, later stage uh, and commercial, you may approach a financial investor who typically does series A and B type investments. So they're on the earlier spectrum. But if they see they can really juice their IRRs if they do a late stage investment early in a fund cycle so that they can go and raise the next fund before the seven to 10 year life of that fund is complete. So that you got there's a little bit of, you know, fund, you know, trickery that happens if you know how to play it. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily uh, play that those games, but but it, you've seen it work time and time again for an early exit gives um, a fund a really nice early IRR that they can go and raise after. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you also mentioned when you were at JJDC, you talked about all these companies that you helped start and yeah. whether it's Verb Surgical or others, I think you mentioned six or seven or something like that. Yeah. Um, when you say that you were an investor there, just paint that picture because it sounds like you were really more involved in company formation rather than just sitting in front of a computer and watching slide decks get drummed into your inbox all day and just saying, I'll give you a million, I'll give you 10 million, I'll give you 500,000. So were you doing passive investment deals and investing as a quote unquote traditional style investor or were you looking at strategic ways of just doing company formation and, and that's also considered investing within a corporate venture capital firm? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think all uh, corporate venturing groups are doing that heavy lift that, that that we did at JJDC. So, you know, Verb is is a notable example. It was uh, it was technology that J and J had been funding um, uh, at a, a local development um, partner here in Silicon Valley. We knew that uh, if we pulled it into J and J, we wouldn't be able to hire a lot of the honestly the software engineers that we needed to to really develop kind of the full data stack to um, have the robotics platform, also you know digital surgical platform that we wanted. And so a lot of it was uh, the ability to hire the right talent was what drove the creation of Verb Surgical and the partnership ultimately with Google too. Um, it was a, a great partnership because we, uh, they had keen interest from the Google Life Sciences team in the field of robotics and sort of com you know, combine that with some of the, the data scientists and engineers and software engineers that they had at Google with the, I called it the clinical context, the, the value that Ethicon brought to the table with a deep, deep knowledge of surgical procedures and techniques around the world, right? I mean, 
Ethicon, I think, is in 95% of the ORs around the world. So just a breadth and depth that was really needed for that clinical context. Um, other examples like Tusker Medical was a company that was founded based on technology that we had uh, developed. Uh, actually, it was originally a part of a clearance portfolio of technologies. And um, we were not going to advance that uh, that effort. And so uh, between so kind of the, the corporate development team and then uh, me at JJDC, we then spun that out, had an ownership stake in um, in the new code that got spun out as Tusker Medical. And it ultimately got bought by Smith and Nephew as well. So there's all sorts of different examples. There's no sort of there's no recipe for corp, you know, company formation within a within a, a CVC. Um, they all had different flavors to them. Beyond that corporate company formation, then did you also do that typical investor style of looking at the slide decks and the passive deal flow? Did you yes. do both? Yeah, I did both. I did both. Um, and actually, Cala, uh, though I've been here since the early days, um, Cala was, um, uh, Kate Rosenbluth came into a, a meeting with J&J executives. There are about 10 of us in the room and um, basically said she was going to do uh, what deep brain, you know, implantable surgical deep brain stimulation uh, te technologies do through a wristwatch-like form factor. And um, she had treated about 11 or uh, 12 patients while at Stanford and the technology worked. I mean, it was just, it was a, it's a very visual con condition when you see a patient's hands, you know, shaking and they have a difficult time feeding themselves and, and drinking their coffee um, to then, you know, being after using our, the device to for 30 or 40 minutes, they can easily, you know, feed themselves and, and drink their coffee. So um, even in that first meeting, I had never met Kate before I said, we're going to go start a company. And um, the, the funny part of the story is, I didn't know this, but she had just had her second child and the baby was out uh, in the, the waiting area with her husband and she had to go feed. And so she kind of <laughs> packed up her computer and walked out the door. And I thought, didn't I just tell her we're gonna go start a company? So I reached in my briefcase and I grabbed a business card and I ran after her. And um, I, I guess I won because six weeks later, Cala was formed. <laughs> Very cool story. Very cool. So. That leads to the whole entrepreneurial aspect that I mean, obviously, like you said, that, the, that macro level, but also the financial level and the deal level of being an investment banker, but then having that very unique experience at JJDC of not only doing that traditional style investing of companies within deal flow, but also doing that very entrepreneurial company formation aspect, like you mentioned, and it takes a lot of strategy and thought process to understand how that works together, even if it's in a large corporate organization. So, I mean, I don't know if it's rhetorical or not, but it seemed like you were pretty well prepared to be jumping into entrepreneurship right after that. Um, you would you would think so. I, I my first month on the job, I would go home every day and I would say to my husband, "Oh my gosh, everything hurts." And he said, "What do you mean?" I said, "I'm using muscles that I've never flexed before." <laughs> so so um, uh, I, I, you would have thought I would have been well prepared, but I, I had some growing pains. Well, I think that comes with the, the whole notion of being an entrepreneur and 24 seven, and you have to build something from almost scratch, if you will. But, and especially if you, since you were there from the early days, I, I guess what, uh, another thing that I would say is the profile and to all those entrepreneurs and company professionals out there listening in right now, given your background, and, and I know that you mentioned the story about how the profile was there. And then your husband was the one that gave you the push to say, throw your hat in the ring. I mean, you're talking about jumping into a commercial level company in order to then set that commercial strategy, which you were ideating with the team at the time, given your background, were you more appropriate for a later stage commercial readied company? 
or could you also have seen yourself leaving JJDC and jumping into a physician found, I finally have one patent filed startup company and you're going to run it and build it from scratch? I, I mean, I, I, it sounds like I've done both, I guess, at this point, having you know formed companies from you know a white sheet of paper to, to creating something uh, that went on to be very successful. Um, for me, it was really about a passion for this particular company and technology, but also a belief, and this was really sort of, you know, um, you know, hatched at the time I was founding Verb Surgical, was there was this belief that I had that the future of medicine was, was simply put data-driven therapies. And whether it's the, the data we're now getting from diagnostic procedures and imaging, or the data we get directly from reading a patient's tremor by having a wristwatch-like form factor on their wrist, um, there's so much richness. And I think a lot of medicine in the olden days hasn't benefited from the data, uh, the data capture that we now have today. And so from my perspective, that's what it was, I was excited about. That's to me where I was going to go no matter what. Um, I also had, you know, I'd done a lot in the field of digital surgery and, um, I, you know, I didn't, I loved my time at J and J. I didn't want to, uh, anger them in any way. And so this was a nice sort of, um, a company and, and team that I'm absolutely passionate about and adore. Um, and I can also play out kind of my data-driven therapies uh, investment theme. And then also for those entrepreneurs listening in, since you have been on the company formation side, albeit in J&J, um, but you know what it means to be on that ground level. And here you are doing a commercial strategy company. For all those entrepreneurs, either thinking about building a company or all of them who are currently in it in very early stages, it truly does take a very different skill set to develop an R&D staged company or even a clinical stage company in this regulated environment that we live in versus a commercial stage company. I mean, those are almost, if not factually, two different worlds as a CEO. I think they are. Um, you've seen some people be successfully make that arc, uh, go, go from that development early R&D stage into the commercial stage. There's probably uh, fewer uh, of those. Um, I think that was why, you know, we had convinced Kate that we were going to bring on uh, a new CEO. Um, there was no burning platform. It was just, there was a skill set that was missing. Um, I think also, uh, maybe this is a bias of mine that I'll show here on this call. I think in the early days of a company, you can get by with using um, consultants for certain activities. Um, but at the point where we're at today, I, I like maybe I'm a control freak too, but I like to hire directly, right? I mean, I want to have my team in-house, um, especially because we have a huge pipeline to get after, and we've just got more, more studies to run, more development to do, and more commercialization to do. So um, I think you, you, you get by in those early days being scrappy, using consultants, you know, being very efficient with your dollars and your equity, to be honest. Um, but at the point that we're at, um, it's now building the team under the hood here at Cala. I want to jump into this next category of board members. You mentioned them earlier on in, in the, the conversation today. And I know that you're board members of other companies. You clearly have board members of your own company at Cala Health. This notion of board members for entrepreneurs listening in, whether it's taking money from a venture capital firm or a CVC and having that person become a board member or having founder board members or independent board members, what makes a good board member? As an entrepreneur where you have 
and how the pyramid works, right? Where, you know, in theory, everyone reports to you and you're the top of the pyramid as a CEO, and then you shine up to the board. And that's who you have to tell the story to. Um, what makes a good board and what makes a good board member? Um, I always say that I only want to go somewhere where I can add value and have a voice, right? And so if you're, if, if, uh, if, people aren't willing to listen, then it's not worth my time, right? I mean, there's lots of different ideas, lots of different ways to do things. Um, and, and I do share a lot of my learnings and experience across hundreds of companies uh, when I when I sit on a board. Um, my board in particular, I what I uh, appreciate about my, while it's heavily um, investor oriented right now, they all have um, specific operating experience and, and they, they have kind of different lenses. And so I have uh, someone who's, you know, my, my chairman of the board is Stacey Exensing, she's an incredible commercial leader uh, uh, through MedTech, um, you know, having been Boston Scientific, EV3, Covidian, and then Medtronic, right? Just incredible commercial perspective that she brings to the table. I've got other, other folks that are engineers. I have um, my most recent board member um, came from Ascension Ventures and his background is he's a lawyer and also a neuroscientist, right? And, and then I have another investor who's super, super, and by the way, John is, John Culper from Ascension is also leads their digital health investments, right? And so I have these really neat mixes where um, I can go, I don't have to go broadly to the board and say, hey, I'm kind of you know, thinking about this or I'm worried about this. You know, what are the digital solutions that you've seen out in the marketplace to attack this problem? And so I can go in a really targeted way to kind of two or three of my board members for different parts of the, 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 ch the challenges we're facing. Very cool. And when you being a board member for other board, for other boards, for other companies, is there qualities within an individual board member that you would advise entrepreneurs thinking about when either they're either bringing on an independent or talk about what makes a good board member independently? Yeah, and I'll, let me give you the, the example of Cala. Um, we wrote into the Series A term, so J&J uh, &J and Lux Capital led the Series A for Cala. We wrote into that term sheet that there would be an independent board seat available. That independent board seat lasted through the A, the B, the C, and then we brought on Stacey Exensing as our, as our chairman of the board. Uh, and I always say we would have, the, think of the mistakes we would have made if we had brought someone on at the series A phase. The questions we needed to answer then are very, very different questions than what we needed to answer after the series C. And so, um, uh, don't just fill a board because you, you have a seat. I always, you know, it's very hard to, um, to move folks off the board. And so um, I think it's one thing that Cal has done well is, as we've grown, as we've made sure that um, those people still have a voice and still have a role, um, but maybe in a board observer seat or in an advisor type seat to us. Um, uh, but yeah, don't feel this rapid need to just add somebody because today's problem is X. I want to move over in this last segment, if you will, of actually raising capital, right? So we've talked about how you've invested capital, you've done company formation, we talked about what it means to be a good board member from both sides of the table. Um, raising capital, you've, you've jumped into Kala Health now, and since being there, you've raised how many rounds, including this just, last Just one. one. Yeah, no, I actually came on board after the Series C was closed. Okay. And so I've just did the Series D round of financing a couple months ago. So then that, you came in after C, 
it was a well-funded company and now you had time to build out the, the commercial strategy what you've accomplished over the past couple of years. When you had to then look at the bank account and say, hey, we need to get some more money in here in the future, having not raised capital before, having been an investor before and having put companies together probably on capital raises in addition to M&A, what was it like raising capital for the first time? What was that what were a few aha moments from an entrepreneurial perspective that you just simply didn't know and certainly differentiated themselves from being an investor, giving money away, um, but ask, asking for money, taking money and the nuances and strategy from doing it at more of a later stage commercial stage company. What were some of those aha moments? Um, well, I was, <laughs> I was surprised even, even at this stage, how many people still said no. And partially because we were going after some of the later stage growth investors and we didn't have um, kind of the, the revenue threshold. We didn't meet their revenue threshold. And so they, they had to say no, but you'd say <laughs> there were a lot of those. So a lot of people still say no. Um, the other aha that I was completely blown away by, and, I, and I'll give you this. I mean, 2021 has been a record year for digital health and, and health tech funding. Um, we've had pets of the SPAC noise early and earlier in the year. We've had IPOs. So cross everybody has the investor groups this year are extraordinarily busy. So I was shocked when I got answers, not just, you know, not one or two, but many of people who said, gosh, it sounds like it's an enormous market, this essential tremor, but it's out of my wheelhouse. And I don't have time to go learn a new market. And that was fascinating to me. Um, and, and so, um, you know, the diligence just at the highest level of saying the essential tremor market is seven to 10 million patients. You know, there's only this many in a physician's office in a given year. We have all the data, but to actually then have them go and validate that and talk to neurologists and really understand the condition, people didn't have bandwidth to do. And the, the mechanics behind starting this then, right? So, I mean, when you jumped in fresh money from Series C, commercially growing the company, hiring people, whatever you had to do, when you finally realized that you had to go out and raise this Series D round, did you just tap your best friends on the shoulder in the industry and say, hey, I got to raise this round of funding, like what should I do? Or did you sit in front of a computer with an Excel spreadsheet and Google late stage growth investors and start making calls? Like what were some of the mechanics behind yeah. that grit? So we went, so we did, we had a short list. So what, what we did is back in kind of uh, late, I'd say maybe early February through early March, we did um, kind of prep meetings. We went out and talked to, and we had a series of different groups. We had crossovers, growth stage investors, and then sort of, you know, um, series CD type investors. And um, we had a mix of corporates and financial investors, US, Asian, European. And we, we, we wanted to get a flavor. So I had kind of like five in each category. And we came away with um, the crossover guys saying, listen, I, this is better than most of the IPOs I'm seeing right now. <laughs> you know, um, wouldn't you consider, you know, you know, going IPO sooner? And I said, no, we got to, there's some really key questions that we need to answer about our business. Um, the growth stage guys told us, you're not the revenue threshold. And so we, we went more of the traditional, we got very good response from more of the traditional late stage type investors. Mm -hmm. And so we use that to inform um, our ultimate um, uh, kickoff to our financing. So we were, we had 
received notification early in January that we received two unique codes from Medicare, which is you know almost unheard of for a company with their, within their first year on market uh, to get unique coding from Medicare. Those codes were um, uh, able to be starting to be used in April of this year. And so we wanted to have some experience with filing initial claims, which we didn't do within that. We filed initial claims in the commercial um, private insurance space. And so we wanted to have a little bit of experience about what did that look like before we kicked off of financing. And so on the heels of that, we started our financing in mid to late May. And then we closed it uh, Well, we signed our term sheet, you know, over the summer and then closed uh, early November. So it actually went fairly quickly in the big yeah. scheme of things. I'm about to say, I mean, even the full close of that whole thing took six months, but six months or less, actually. I mean, it less, was, yeah, yeah that, that moved very quickly. Um, and then in terms of your filter that you just built, um, you, you told us about how you had the better luck with the later stage. Was there, was there a rhyme or reason to going to institutional investors or CVCs or was, did you break that down or was it? Oh, kind of <laughs> I forgot to tell you one really important part of my story. There so, we go. Um, very important was that we actually have in our series. So J and J was part of the A in the series B, we had four more strategic investors uh, join us uh, on this journey. So we have um, three pharmaceutical companies and two tech companies. So it's J&J, Novartis, GSK, and then Qualcomm and Google. Um, and so we had a very deep bench and didn't necessarily feel the big need for more strategic capital. Um, uh, but we did talk to a handful of strategics and I consider Ascension a strategic. They're just, uh, a, they, they weren't the flavor of investors that we'd had previously, but the incredible you know, depth to their, their whole health system. I mean, the diligence we did was within the, the Ascension health system, which is amazing. And the act of raising capital then, I mean, did you do it all over Zoom or I know that we kind of broke out a little bit this year, but did, did you end up doing anything in person or was this all digital stuff? We did the vast majority of it digitally. And then um, I had a couple uh, visits on site where people wanted to, people wanted to see the device. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like I'm a biotech and I have molecules that people can't see, right? I have, I have a physical piece of hardware that, that investors can touch and feel and wear. So um, we did have some on-site visits for sure. Very cool. So I just want to wrap up with an open-ended question, once again, on the entrepreneurial nature. Um, having gone through raising capital for the first time, and you explained your filter process and also some of the investors that even jumped in and the history behind them. But for those who have never raised capital before on a human level, what would you advise them to think about, whether it's philosophical or spiritual or however you want to classify it? But like when you talk about raising capital, is it as hard as everyone says it is? Can you put a little bit of methodology behind it if you just do a little bit of research? Um, is there, is there any shortcuts you can take? Is there just the grind that you have to go through? Is it all about networking? Like just give some nuggets of information if you were talking to an audience of first time entrepreneurs who have never raised capital, just like you have gone through and those pearls of wisdom that you'd want to instill on them, just like the holistic or the, the high level nature of raising capital. Yeah, um, so I force all those kind of the, those entrepreneurial teams that I would work with, you know, they're three folks in a, in a, in a pretty slideshow. Um, I force them to ask everybody they know to invest. I said, you're going to get so many no's. Why don't you get them from friendly people? <laughs> and so you got to keep, you just got to not be afraid to ask, not be afraid to take no. It's not personal. Um, 
you don't know if that's if it's an angel investor, you don't know what their situation is at that time. Um, but you need to be willing to keep asking. I'll be honest with you, it was very funny. Ascension was actually, I was talking to Matt Herman, who runs the group. He's been a dear friend for years. I was actually showing him a deal um, for a friend of mine. And I said, hey, you know, Cal is raising, start just kicking off our series D financing. Would you guys want to take a look? And look where it ended up. They led our series D financing, right? <laughs> and so it's those, it's those little, uh, it's those um, times when you think the answer is going to be no or hey, not now or whatever, that you may get a yes. And do not take the no's personally. We all have them. Um, and you just got to have a little bit of a tougher, thick skin. Love ending off on this one. And once again, this is words of wisdom from somebody who has hit all three parts, which we've never been able to do on this podcast series yet. So you had the investment investment banking wisdom turned into investor wisdom and also company formation wisdom into now entrepreneurial wisdom on the commercial side and having raised capital. So Renee Ryan, CEO of Kala Health and investor in former investment banker as well. I want to say thank you very much for your time here today. I love the discussion. I learned personally a lot. Um, I hope the audience did as well. This is MedTech Money, where we demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.